everyone, this is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week, we talk about how to love ourselves, others in the higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, health, relationships, and spirituality. And today, we have a very distinguished guest. We have Mr. Timothy Wilson, who is a esteemed social psychologist uh, and psychology professor at the University of Virginia. He's well known for his research on self-knowledge, adaptive unconscious, and effective forecasting. He has won numerous awards, including the Thomas Jefferson Award of Excellence uh, Scholarship, and he's been elected to the Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has authored one of psychology's most cited papers, and he's the author of two excellent books, Strangers to Ourselves, Discovering the Adaptive Unconscious, and Redirect, The Surprising New Science of Psychological Change. Welcome to the show, Dr. Timothy. Oh, great to be here. Yeah, and you got a, a lot of fascinating and very interesting concepts in uh, your books and your and your teaching. Uh, the idea of the adaptive unconscious. Now, when I think about uh, unconscious, uh, I think of Freud's a version of uh, you know, repressed impulses that people have deep inside. Uh, Jungian, uh, you know, collective unconscious archetypes that are passed along to generations. Basically, it's something that's in our, in our mind that we don't access. So, how do you define the adaptive unconscious? Well, um, the adaptive unconscious, the word adaptive is meant to convey how necessary and um, important it is for the operation of our minds, that uh, um, we couldn't live without um, the subterranean mental processes that guide us, uh, help us understand the situation we're in. Um, The Freudian unconscious was meant to portray a cauldron of basic drives and, and urges which you know, I actually think there's some truth to. Yes. But in addition to that, um, there's so much of our minds that this operates on automatic pilot um, outside of you that helps guide us through life in very adaptive ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, when I'm thinking about this, I also looked a little bit to Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Blink, talking about a thin slicing, kind of like these quick intuitive responses that we have, these judgments. And um, apparently, adaptive unconscious has some of that as well, where we pick up certain you know quick clues, maybe intuitive things. We react, we think, we judge based on that, and that could be helpful, I imagine, in the sense of like doctors that come up with you know rapid diagnosis based on kind of um, a feeling plus uh, you know knowledge. Uh, you've heard of uh, Gottman's research, John Gottman uh, marriage research, where you can observe a couple for an hour and then predict maybe up to ninety percent accuracy if they're going to stay together. And even uh, art experts can kind of like almost smell a fake. There's something about a fake art piece. So I can see those benefits, but uh, there are also maybe disadvantages. The idea that there could be stereotypes, uh, you know, we know, police brutality, you know, you think he's a criminal, but he's not, you know, and then they, they you know, they, they beat him up and all. Uh, and also other mistakes that can be made. So tell us about that. Uh, are there advantages and disadvantages of this adaptive unconscious? Yeah, I mean, uh, um I mean, one analogy we sometimes use is like a modern jetliner that flies on automatic pilot. Um, it, it doesn't a great deal of information processing that would be hard for a pilot to do by um, him or herself. Yeah. In the same way, the human mind is equipped with um, tremendous abilities to process information quickly and non-consciously to guide our behavior. Uh, but with that, there does come a downside. If we if we use false information, um, if we are using stereotypes, um, that can lead us down a path of quick judgments that can be quite harmful. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, 
the idea of intuition, uh, you know, it's very appealing to have these, you know, these gut instincts or feelings about things and, and you know, be accurate. And, uh, but on the other hand, you know, we can overestimate that. And you talk about the uh, program called Scared Straight, where they used to bring these, uh, you know, kids in uh, to the prisons and, you know, the convicts would say, hey, you know, this is what you're going to be like if you're in here to scare them. And it seems like that's intuitive that that would scare people, you know, avoidance kind of thing, right? Or association uh, with fear. But you said that research shows that it's opposite. You actually become more criminals after seeing the criminals, which is a, I wonder why that is. But you said that that's kind of goes against the um, uh, so-called intuitive part of it. Yeah, I mean, one of my uh, pet peeves as a psychological scientist is that people use their intuition to start new programs without any attempt to test um, whether they work. Um, we never do that in the medical realm. You know, if we, someone said they had a cure for diabetes or something and, and uh, they made it in their basement, we'd never take it if they hadn't been um, subject to strict testing. The psychological uh, interventions, people often just use common sense. Um, and the Scary Trades program is a great example of it. Sure, it seems like it would help to scare kids. Um, but it turns out one of the worst things you can do with at-risk um, adolescents is bring them together. They, they tend to want to impress each other uh, more than um, than adults. And um, like, a, like a macho braggadocia kind of thing. Like, I yeah. Can worse. Yeah. Now, now, is that unconscious? Is that similar to intuition, or is it more of like a heuristic where it's a shortcut? How would you classify Well, that? some of both. I mean, it, it can be everything from um, quickly identifying um, things in our environment to interpreting things in our environment to um, triggering emotions. Um, uh, these are all things that, that uh, I mean, you know, in, in one of my books, I, I, I do a kind of a counterfactual exercise of imagine the unconscious mind wasn't working, what our day would be like. And, um, you know, first of all, we never get out of bed because our perceptual system wouldn't, wouldn't guide us to, to let us stand up straight. Right. Um, but it would just be terrifying to, I mean, every situation we were in would seem new and, and totally unfamiliar. And we would have to use our conscious minds to slowly process, you know, what was going on. Yeah. Um, and this is what our adaptive unconscious is doing for us is, is, is um, interpreting using heuristics, um, guiding us in what is hopefully a good direction. Okay. So mm -hmm. apparently there's a lot more power or strength in this adaptive unconscious that we ever knew because we thought the conscious mind is the one that controls everything, right? This, we make decisions, we analyze stuff. But I think you're saying that the adaptive unconscious has a lot of this process uh, underneath that is happening at the same time, uh, giving us a, you know, this kind of um, knowledge that we need. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at the same time, I, I would agree with you that I wouldn't say that intuition is always correct. Um, it, uh, I mean, years ago, I did some research showing that we can actually get ourselves into trouble by overanalyzing our feelings and, and trying to make lists of pluses and minuses. And it's best to sort of trust our, our initial impulses. But that's only true if it's based on good information, but that um, intuition based on very little information. Um, I mean, for example, if you go into a bar and you meet someone, you know them for five minutes, 
and your intuition says this will make a good marital partner. Hmm. No, do not trust that intuition. You don't have any information. Yeah, well, it's but, like the, 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 the halo effect. You know, like you think someone's physically attractive, you think they'll have other qualities, like they're smart, they're loyal, and, and that may not be the case. Yeah, but if you've known someone for a year and um, right. yeah, and your intuition is this is the one, then that's, that's a pretty good intuition to trust. There you go. So intuition plus research equals possible success, you're saying, <laughs> in terms of this. Now, you mentioned in your in your life that you had, um, I guess maybe a bias that came out. You said you went to a PTA meeting and your wife had told you there's this one guy that's very obnoxious and, you know, he's kind of aggressive or something. And you went there and you, you listened to the guy and he was kind of obnoxious. He told, hey, your wife, you're right. And she told you, well, I was the wrong guy. It was like Bill or Phil. It was a different, different person. <laughs> but you had somehow internally processed uh, that perception. You saw him, the, the guy that was okay, as aggressive. So how does that work? How does that happen? I mean, that's a beautiful example of, uh, an embarrassing example, I might say, <laughs> of um, <laughs> kind of self-fulfilling prophecies where, where, you know, once we expect something to be so, it's easy to find information that confirms it then. And, you know, I was listening to this guy who I thought was the one my wife had said was a bad listener and kind of obnoxious. And I could find evidence that that was true, right. even though it was the wrong guy. And, and he was, was a Phil or Bill that was the obnoxious guy? I don't remember which one of those Bill or Phil. <laughs> it's almost the same, right? <laughs> just that I was wrong and embarrassed about yeah. it. As long as you're not the obnoxious guy, it's okay, right? It's <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's really fascinating. This stuff is um, it's kind of very practical, common sense, but is also deeply psychologically, uh, I mean, research oriented too. So you're kind of putting the science behind um, you know things that we kind of feel, but we don't really we're not sure about. And the other thing that you talk about is the idea of effective forecasting, the idea that we predict how we're going to feel in the future. This is very interesting. You know, if I get this job, I'm going to be happy. But then you get the job, you're not that happy, or the relationship. This happens quite a bit. So we may not be as accurate as predicting our feelings and possibly, uh, you know, we uh, overestimate the impact of the event on our emotions. Maybe that job didn't really change our emotions that much, or maybe we overestimate our resilience in terms of fear. You know, it's going to happen, the, the catastrophe, but once you have, it happens to you, you know, you can adapt because humans are adaptable. So how do you see this happening? Do you see this um, effective forecasting? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is a very, when we talk about self-knowledge, we, we often don't think about trying to imagine what will be like in the future. But, but this is a very important kind of self-knowledge to, to judge um, what are, how our lives might unfold and how we'll react if things go our way or don't go our way. I mean, after all, we steer our lives according to um, what we think will make us happier or avoiding things that will make us, make us unhappy. But along with my um, friend and colleague, Daniel Gilbert, we've done a lot of research on, on what we call affective forecasting. Which is, well, how accurate are those predictions about um, how we'll respond? How happy will we be if we win the lottery? Or if we, how, how sad and for how long will we be if we lose the loved one? And um, we have found um, repeatedly that people tend to overestimate the emotional impact of future events. And by that, I don't mean that good things won't be good or bad things won't be bad. It's just maybe not quite as good or as long make us feel as good for as long as we thought and bad things maybe won't make us feel as bad for as long as we thought. And as you said, we tend to be very resilient at making sense of the world. Um, and that's, that's a really good thing for negative events that we can eventually find some meaning in, in terrible things that happen to us and, 
and we feel terrible, maybe not quite as long as we expected to. Many of us have experienced this with romantic breakups where we think, you know, the world will come to an end if this person leaves us. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, it feels terrible when, when someone does leave us, but the world doesn't come to an end. Eventually, we, we do get over it. That makes sense. Uh, I think some merchants talk about the happiness set point where initially with a positive event, you go up to a certain uh, amount of happiness, but you go back to your previous level, you know, maybe the lottery. Some people, when they win the lottery, they uh, even commit suicide. You know, they overspend and, you know, they go back to a depressive state. And sometimes when people lose a limb, there's depression, but then they, they often go back to a certain happiness point. What do, you, uh, what do you think of that idea? Is there a happiness set point? Yeah, well, um, yes and no. I mean, I, I just think there are things we can do to change that set point a little bit. I, I don't think we're doomed to one particular level of happiness. Um, and I think there are things we can do to to become happier. Um, but, but I don't think it's in the, in the external world where some, this thing will make me happy uh, forever or, or make me sad forever. Um, you know, things we do tend to adapt very quickly to these external things that happen to us. I see. One thing I, I find interesting in the um, adaptive unconscious is uh, what we call non-conscious goal setting. And you give an example of, let's say you're playing your niece in tennis. And uh, you don't want to embarrass her. So, you know, you're going to kind of like not take it easy on her, right? You're not going to hit to the corners and all that. But if you play your obnoxious neighbor, you can you know, hit as much as you can and try to get him to run and, and, and beat him. But you don't think about that. It's kind of an like unconscious um, adaptation. I used to play tennis in high school, so I kind of can visualize that. Are you a tennis player, Dr. Wolf? I'm actually not. I was more a basketball player than baseball player. <laughs> you probably take it easy on some people that you like versus not like. Is that an unconscious thing people do? Well, um, I mean, this is uh, kind of on the um, new territory in, in research where people are looking at it. Is the unconscious capable even of setting its own goals without us knowing it? You know, we tend to think of goals as something we set consciously. And for the most part, that's true. But there is some evidence that something in the environment can trigger a goal without us fully realizing that, that it's been triggered. Maybe it's a competitive goal or. A cooperative goal that, that and I think you know many of us had the experience of sort of catching ourselves and thinking, wait a minute, what am I doing? Uh, trying to beat my niece you know, so handily, um, not realizing this goal that has been been triggered unconsciously. <laughs> so, which is the beating the niece uh, competitive? Is that the unconscious or the conscious one? Well, I'm not sure one is more competitive than the other. It really depends on. Um, yeah, you know, the particular situation and and um, you know what our current goal is. <laughs> right. Well, I'm saying when you say I'm going to take it easy on my niece versus the neighbor, uh, but you're very competitive. Is that an internal comp competitive nature that's hard for you to to take it take the foot off the pedal? Or is that something uh, you're uh, could be, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, if you remember the old Terminator series um, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They created the machine, right? I think Teledyne. And then it was supposed to be like a good robot, but then it, it kind of became evil and it took over. So in a sense, do we control our adopted unconscious or does it control us? Well, good question. And, you know, I, I think, again, I like the analogy of a modern airliner where um, that we can be on automatic pilot, but we do have the, the ability to grab the reins and let our conscious selves um, um, you know, grab a hold of it and and change course. And um, 
Yeah, I don't think we're like automatons that that we somehow are go on these uncontrolled rages or something. I, I think we're able to. Um, I mean, I think it, we have to be vigilant and uh, make sure we're acting according to our how we want to. But no, I don't think we're uh, we're in fear of being a terminator. But what about <laughs> what about obsessive compulsive people? I mean, aren't they driven by their obsession and compulsion? Could that be part of that? Well, sure. I mean, when we get into mental illnesses, um, you know, their addiction. You know, another example would be addictions that you know, can be very hard to overcome. But but yeah, right. sure, those are cases where um, conscious control becomes more limited. Right. And the other thing is, how do we tap into this? That's unconscious, as you're saying, or, you know, can monitor it or change it. And I think you mentioned introspection, where you start to look into your feelings and, and all your behaviors, actually, to see how you're feeling. Uh, but then the, there's a drawback to that. For example, you could misattribute, you know, what you're really feeling. So I'm thinking of, let's say, you, your friend is broke and you give him some money. So you can say, well, I'm a compassionate person. But maybe deep inside, you have what's called downward comparison, where you feel better because he's not doing well. So there's going to be another motivation. Uh, so that could be an issue. Uh, so how do you do, or, you know, the actor-observer bias, uh, I think you mentioned that, where um, you attribute bad things that happen to you to externals and then other people that do the same thing to their internal. So, you you know, you cut someone off on the freeway. Well, you know, I'm late to work and I try, you know, I'm trying to get there. If they cut you off, they're a jerk. Uh, so how do we uh, monitor that part, the, the uh, introspection part? Yeah, I mean... Um... I mean, introspection is, is um, I don't think it's a direct pipeline to the unconscious as some people might imagine it to be, as, as Freud, in fact, thought it could be, that, that if we remove our defenses, we can sort of open a trap door and look directly into our, our unconscious. I think of introspection as more of a construction. It's a way to help us tell a story, to try to notice what we're feeling and make the best story we can for who we are and, and, and what we're doing. Um, and that story surely is biased by um, wanting to view ourselves positively. So not as the jerk, but as someone who, um, you know, has good intentions. Um, there's no doubt that, that we are trying to put a rosy spin on ourselves. Um, but we're trying to be accurate too. And, and I think um, introspection is, again, I, I like the storytelling analogy where we're weaving a story about ourselves much as we do about other people. I see, I like that. And the other thing I really liked about your book, uh, toward the end, you're talking about uh, acting as if. Uh, for example, if you're shy, you act as if you're not shy. And I wrote a book actually called The Gift of Shyness that talks about the positive of shyness. You know, shy people can be sensitive, good listeners, and uh, even loyal. Uh, but the problem is the self-conscious side, right? What I call the observer. So the one of the techniques we talk about is to become more of the actor and less of the observer. The actor is the spontaneous, natural side of you. So I say, you know, find an actor or actress that you really admire, maybe kind of act and talk a little bit like them and practice like that. And you said you uh, you were shy yourself, an introvert. Did you try something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I am on the shy side and, and um, you know, instead of um, just trying to introspect to make myself uh, change, I, I do think this principle of the so-called do good, be good principle of, of um, changing our behavior first and letting our personality catch up to it. And, um, you know, it's, it's not magical, but I do think um, 
there was a time when I wished I wouldn't be so shy at parties. And I said, okay, I'm just going to make an effort. I'm going to go up to someone I don't know and strike up a conversation. And, um, you know, that took some effort for me, but I often found they were relieved to have someone um, initiate the conversation. They too were feeling a bit, um, you know, um, people are afraid of each other in some ways, you know, like in terms of social interaction. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you do that, the next time becomes a little easier. Um, By the way, you kind of remind me of Clint Eastwood a little bit. You look a little bit like Clint. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, I'll make your day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I imagine, is there an actor that you would maybe even model yourself kind of like that you think has confidence or something you like to be like? Um, Or even a personage in history? Yeah, I mean, not a particular actor I can think of. I mean, just people I've known who are, um, I mean, my friend Dan Gilbert, he's been my collaborator for years, and and he is one of the funniest people I know. Happiness, right? Yeah, yeah. um, uh, And, um, you know, he is an amazing public speaker and, and, um, and not at all shy. And so if I could emulate him a little, I, I would be be happy. <laughs> that makes sense. But I mean, some introverted shy people are actually great actors, you know, because they um, take on the persona, right? Of the extrovert or the non-shy. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting. And they, you know, they, deep, they get deep into the character. So there's some advantages to that. Yeah, I've, that's never been a, something I've been good at. But yeah. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> so the other thing is... Uh, uh, redirect. Now, this is, you know, this is a good tie-in. We're talking about narratives and stories. So you're talking about the idea that you can change your inner story, right? Your inner cognitions, your inner beliefs and all that. And that can increase your happiness, I guess, in life and, and success. And you mentioned that for you, uh, happiness is based on three elements. is meaning, optimism or hope, and sense of purpose. And uh, it's kind of interesting. And you mentioned one of the psychologists, uh, Dweck, who talks about the growth mindset. Versus the fixed mindset. So growth meaning that I believe I can improve my mind, you know, neuroplasticity, I can change my brain and become better. So people that have that mindset, internal locus of control can actually improve, right? And do things. But on the other hand, if you say, well, I can't really change, I'm stuck in my ways, uh, uh, the fixed mindset, then they're not going to try harder. And as a result, they'll fail. So I, what do you think about that, that idea? Yeah, I'm a fan of that work. Um, it's, um, you know, there's now very good evidence that um, it can help. Uh, there's interventions that help middle school students um, by um, getting them to change from a fix to a, a growth mindset about their math abilities, for example. Um, and, you know, no one thinks this can turn a D student into an A student, but, but, it, but it can improve academic performance because, as you say, once I have the belief that um, this isn't, just something fixed. I try harder. I seek out help more. I try different strategies. Um, it drives me crazy when I hear people saying I'm not a math person because um, I mean you never hear people say I'm not a word person. Yeah, <laughs> and so why is it okay to say I'm not a math person? Now, of course, some of us have more facility with numbers than others, right. but you should be. Um, it's, it's not that people aren't math people; it's that they maybe didn't learn the right strategies. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And uh, and then there's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So the, the student gets an F in math. I'm terrible at math, so I'm going to skip my math class. So I'm not yeah. it anyways. And then they get they keep getting bad grades and it keeps uh, going. Uh, you know, the depressive mindset. 
Yeah. And I assume you can do the opposite, right? If you believe that you can change, you know, they can improve your grades. So mindset is very important. And I think the story we're talking about is part of that. But of course, genetics is very important too. Uh, what percentage do you think is um, mindset versus genetics, do you think? Well, that's, you know, that's an impossible question to answer, I think. And, and uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard Carol Dweck being asked that question. And, um, and she'll dodge it, too, I think. <laughs> but, she'll, but she'll say, you know, we don't really know the answer, but the more we believe it's, it's changeable, the better off we are. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Some people say 50-50, and some people with identical monozygotic twin studies you know, like if one is a high IQ, the other one is an 80% chance of high IQ at the age of 20. So, you know, but then the other ones that are, are not, right? They, they don't have the same IQ. So it's probably, um, but it's interesting to talk about, you know, the environmental influences. But ideally, um, you, you talk about some exercises. You have interesting exercises. And I like that you have practicality in your book as well, uh, in terms of um, how to change the, you know, the narrative, as you say. I think you call it story resetting or something like that, how to reset your story. And you mentioned um, as a pen and baker writing exercise where people write down uh, after a traumatic event or something, they have a little bit of um, time to think about it and then they write how they felt. And you said that's better than the uh, debriefing where immediately you're flooded with all the emotions and it kind of sticks with you. So why is that important to do that, the writing exercise? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, James Pennebaker has pioneered this expressive writing technique that um, study after study shows is beneficial. And the way it works is pretty simple. He asked people to take out a piece of paper and write about something that's deeply troubling them uh, for about 15 minutes, typically 15 minutes for two or three nights in a row. And um, I'll add an important caveat. It's, it's usually best to do this when we have a little distance from the event. So if something traumatic has just happened, a, a lover has left you, um, it, it's not great to do this five minutes later, but got a couple of weeks passed, got a little distance. And um, what this writing exercise seems to do is to force people to um, find new meaning in it. To often what happens is people start out writing in a very uh, kind of jumbled, nonsensical way, just putting down words. But by the end, they've made a story that understands this event in a way that can put it behind them. And uh, people who do this tend to have show better health in, in the ensuing weeks. Um, students um, uh, get better grades. Um, it, it's just a way to sort of package up a negative event and um, to some extent leave it behind. Um, so it's kind of a reflective, introspective process where you take a step back and then process your feelings, as opposed to the old catharsis, right, where you have a flooding of emotions, and that can actually do something to make it worse. Yeah, yeah. So you get frozen in your, in your negative traumas and, and images. And there, there's some evidence that it helps to take a third-person perspective, too. So rather than writing in the first person, if I were doing it, instead of saying, I feel this, I feel that, I say, well, Tim looks like he's feeling this and feeling that. And it's just a way to sort of gain a different perspective on what's happening to us. And I think I like that one of the exercises you call step back and ask why. So yeah. you think of a time where you're angry and then you imagine you're a little fly on the wall observing that and asking yourself, why did I get angry? And my boss, for example, well, maybe I felt overwhelmed by all the work or maybe the boss got angry because he's going through a divorce. So it gives you like a perspective, right? When you yeah. are more objective, looking at it from a distance, that's a lot better. Yeah. 
And uh, also, I like I like story prompting. I think that was a really cool idea, where you kind of gradually reshape people's um, inner dialogue or inner story in a more positive way. And you give some great examples. Uh, you talk about college freshmen, maybe they got a, a D, for example, after doing well in high school, and now they say, "Oh, I can't make it in college; it's too hard." And you give them a little thirty-minute intervention where you have them read a survey that you know students often have to adjust to it, and they can do it and get better grades. And then they watch an interview with a. Uh, upperclassmen, right? They did actually improve their grades. So why does that work, the story prompting uh, in terms of changing your story? Well, I, I just think there are times in life, often at times of transition, like we're starting college or starting high school or in a new relationship where the narrative isn't set. You know, we're, we're not sure yet exactly why things are happening to us the way they are. And we're at risk at those times if something bad happens, we get a bad grade on our first college test to go down a negative path of self-blame and, and thinking that we can't make it. Um, and it's at those sort of critical narrative forks in the road that social psychologists have come up with some really clever interventions to just nudge people on a better path, to down the path of, well, no, this isn't a reflection that I can't do it. It means that I need to try harder or find different strategies. Um, there are some really great interventions researchers have done with um, starting college, people who feel like they might not belong at that institution. So African-American students at a predominantly white institution might justifiably so feel this institution historically has not treated uh, Blacks very well, and maybe this isn't a welcoming place for me. That can be self-defeating if it prevents them from... Um, uh, trying to adapt, and, and um, may, they might misinterpret standard homesickness that everyone feels as a way of thinking, no, this place is, is a hostile environment. And there's some clever interventions where they just, again, a little nudge to say, you know, everyone feels homesick at first a little bit. Um, it can be a little hard to adjust to college, but it gets better. And one particular study found remarkable effects um, where the African-American students were doing better three years later after getting that one-hour intervention in their freshman year. Very powerful. And you mentioned that, that just a little bit of time in the right direction can actually transform a lot of these negative uh, patterns and thoughts. And it becomes self-sustaining where if, if I sort of change my mindset a little bit and change my story and so I try a little harder, that can reward the new story. And then I try a little harder the next time. So it's kind of a snowball, positive snowball effect that can happen. Yeah, that's really a very good way of paying it forward uh, you know, to ourselves and to others and brings more positivity. Uh, the other example I kind of liked was um, the abusive mom uh, scenario. Where the, some of the moms were, you know, physically abusive to uh, babies because they got mad at them because they were crying too much or something. So either you think of it as that difficult baby that's trying to harass me, or you think the baby needs my help. You know, I can take care of it. And that intervention, actually, you said, reduced the child abuse as well. Yeah, this is an amazing study uh, done by some researchers at UC Santa Barbara that um, uh, they found that you know that parents who abuse their children sometimes do have this irrational way of blaming the child. You know, this, this child uh, uh, doesn't like me or is being, di is being difficult. You know, a six-month-year-old <laughs> kid doesn't have those feelings. But um, they did this little intervention to try to redirect that narrative where they had home visitors 
just um, in a kind of Socratic method, just question these interpretations. So they say to the mother, well, when your baby's crying, why do you think your baby's crying? And they say, well, the baby's being difficult. And they say, well, can you think of another reason why maybe your baby's crying? And sort of nudge them into less harmful interpretations and um, say, well, you know, maybe uh, I didn't burp them enough or maybe they need a nap, you know, things you can do to change it. And that little nudging of the story um, reduced child abuse fairly significantly in this at-risk sample. It's very powerful. I'm thinking that as kind of empathy, putting yourself in another's shoes, which increases your compassion, desire to relieve their suffering. So that, those are, I think, interlocking ideas. That, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, instead of, you know, just, uh, you know, I'm the one that's being overwhelmed, you know, the baby also needs my care and, you know, they're, they're vulnerable. Uh, so uh, the other thing is interesting. You talk about the best possible self uh, exercise where you visualize yourself in the future. And then you ask yourself, uh, how did I get there? You know, maybe I studied, uh, you know, I did internship or graduate school and I got a profession I wanted a relationship. I, I had to, you know, find that right person. But then I would ask you also, Dr. Uh, Wilson, uh, do you believe in positive thinking? I'm going to sit here and say, I'm getting better. I'm smart. I'm smart. Is that going to work? Well, um, not likely, just by itself. And um, I, I'm a little hard on my book. I'm, I'm some uh, some other books that have touted just positive thinking. Um, and, and in fact, you know, there's some evidence that it can be harmful just to imagine good things happening to us because we begin to almost feel we already have it. And it's not, we don't have to work as hard because this good thing's already in my mind. So the real key is, as you said, is to not only imagine what we want, but imagine how we're going to get there. You know, what steps do we need to take yeah. to get that A in this course or to get this job that I want to get and, and outline uh, the implementation strategy to get from A to B? Yeah, so how you got there is very important. Uh, you know, in terms of, the, like you said, the process of it, uh, that's the key to uh, visualize it, right? And kind of to actually... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the other thing is you said uh, to uh, do good, to be good. So you're kind of reversing it as opposed to saying, well, I'm not, I want to be good. I'm thinking about it. But actually, you know, go out maybe help a charity or be kind to others, smile at others, you know, and help the homeless, whatever it is. And you say that changes your internal trait because you start to feel elevated and, you know, positive about yourself and also helping others. So how does that work, the, the be good uh, first? Well, you know, we touched on this earlier, but I think we're very good observers of ourselves, as odd as that sounds, and, and we keep track of what we do. And, and um, so often changing the behavior first is a way to change um, how we feel about ourselves. And, um, and I think, you know, when we're feeling down um, and a little blue, our tendency is to want to lie on the couch and, and, um, and you know, not, not do anything. But if we can manage to get ourselves up and go out and do something for somebody else, um, there's good research that shows that that um, that can actually make us feel better. You know, one of my favorite studies was done at um, University of British Columbia, where they just approached students on the campus in the morning and they gave them 20 bucks. And they said, um, but here's the catch. Um, we want you to spend it by five o'clock. 
And they randomly assigned them to two conditions. In one condition, they said, spend it on yourself. Treat yourself to um, a little gift, um, a meal. Or they said, spend it on somebody else. You, know, you have to use this $20 to um, take a friend out to lunch or give it to charity. or whatever. You decide, but it has to be for someone else's benefit. They then called people up um, in the evening and said, you know, how'd your day go? How happy were you today? And the ones who were the happiness were not the ones who spent it on themselves, but the ones who helped someone else. Um, it encourages social connections. We feel good about ourselves. Um, there's a glow to helping others that can be very powerful. Yeah, and then there's something called elevation, where you actually see others do well. You actually could feel better, too. You could feel inspired. Yeah, it's almost like like a positive chain that, that goes on. So that's, that's a beautiful philosophy, but also it could be very practical, right? We can use it to help change the world in a way. And I think Love University, one of our mottos is to help you know love yourself, others, and, and a higher nature. And by mm -hmm. you know expressing mm -hmm. that love without expectation, that, that's powerful. Uh, so Dr. Wilson, um, what is your story? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Um, uh, How do you see yourself? I mean, uh, you know. What's your, you know, self-concept? Well, can you narrow it down at all? <laughs> uh, well, in terms of your work and your life, uh, you know, like we all have a, I guess, a mission or a purpose. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you've caught me at a time of transition. So I've actually okay. just re just retired from teaching oh, as of uh, a week ago. I mean, I'm still going to be active in research, I think. But I taught my last class uh, okay. a week ago. And, um, you know, I, I think, I hope I've, my research has had some benefit to, to others and that my teaching has touched people. Um, certainly not everyone who had to sit in my classroom, but um, I feel, you know, I hear from students occasionally that, that um, well, I'll tell you a quick story that, that made me feel good. I, I had a student uh, write me. So I'm sure you don't remember me, uh, but I was in your class um, 15 years ago, and um, it was a big lecture class. And on the day of the final exam, I overslept and I missed it. I showed up right when the exam was ending, and I was in tears. And I saw, I thought I was going to flunk the course. And you said to me, "Relax, just take the exam." And I did, and I did well, and that changed my life because I went on to actually study psychology and become a psychologist. Um, I obviously had no memory of this, but it, it did illustrate to me that very small acts of kindness um, can have a big impact on other people and um, cost us almost nothing and yet help someone else. And I, you know, I hope in my life I've had more than that one example. <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. They said that, that kindness is when you forget what you did, but they never do. The person okay. never received it. And they pass it along. So I would almost summarize today. I would say, um, you said you're a stranger to yourself, but I would say uh, know yourself, love yourself, and then help others. Uh, I think, um, does that summarize? That's, that's a good philosophy. I would agree. Did I know something true? Doctor, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, you have some wonderful ideas. I can see a lot of compassion, too. There's a lot of... Um, caring and what you do for others. Oh, thank you. And where can we hear more about you? I know you have a lot of books and websites. Um, what are you excited about that you want to talk to us about? Uh, people that need to hear? 
Well, you know, since I'm at this transition point, um, I'm not quite sure what the future has in store. I hope I'm not done with my research. Uh, I, I love doing psychological studies to further these ideas. And um, I'm actually am still involved in some intervention studies to, to help students um, learn better. So I, I hope that continues. Is there a website or any things people can contact? Um, I'm not, you know, I have a very rudimentary website. Um, if you Google Timothy Wilson, um, there's a few links on there to my books and, and other uh, right. other resources. Okay, so Strangers to Ourselves and Redirect are the two uh, very fascinating books. Maybe you and I can collaborate in the future in some way. I'd love to have you on. Great. And it's been wonderful to have you. So again, this is Dr. Alex Avila. And if you have questions for today's guest, uh, if you want to comment, you can reach us at loveuniversity.love. Write to us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. Call us at 310-226-8090. So again, uh, knowing thyself, loving thyself, helping others, uh, and you know, tapping into that part of you that is, is very positive can help others. Uh, thank you, Dr. Wilson, for being on the show. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. And uh, put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. Class is now dismissed as Dr. Wilson is joining me today. And that was our interview with Mr. Timothy, Dr. Wilson. A very fascinating guy who loves research. He loves science, and he's really trying to help a lot of people. And his main uh, purpose is to know yourself, uh, your abdominal unconscious, tap into those inner powers that we have, the intuition, the, the ability to make decisions and judgments, and also to change our stories, our negative stories that keep us down. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not attractive enough. And change it into more positive stories. Uh, I am success, can be successful. I'm intelligent. I'm attractive. And I'm loving. Once we do all those things, we can really become the best we can be, and we can become part of the love that we have inside. So this is Dr. Alex Avila. If you want to more about our Love University, if you want to learn more about it, you can uh, download the show at Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and pick up a copy of my book, The Gift of Shyness, which we talked about today, at Amazon.com. So you can follow us and like us on Facebook and Instagram at Love University Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Love Letter U Podcast. So until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila of Love University, class of